1: hello i'm david kern and i'm, I'm tim heidi mcintosh
0: white. ah for god so sorry I, it's I, my fault my fault i'm david kern
2: <laughs> i'm heidi white
0: <laughs> i'm tim mcintosh and i'm third and it's okay it's okay we can mix it
1: up if we need to no I mean, no no can,
0: No, I'm third. I
1: like being third. You are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the Incurable Reader from Goldberry Studios. And we are here to discuss Willa Cather's, Willa Cather's, Willa Cather's, Willa Cather, her novel from 1927, Death Comes for the Archbishop. We're going to discuss parts uh, seven and eight, which are called Doña Isabella and no, six and seven, six parts, six 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 and seven, seven, Doña Isabella and the Great Diocese. We're going to discuss both of those. Um, and before we kind of dive into, you know, some of the passages on those sections, I wanted to go back to a question that I asked you guys um, in the second episode, so two episodes ago, that I think we should come back to because I would love to know if your answers have changed over, these, over the reading the next four sections. There's two questions that I have that are sort of big picture questions of the book, and then we can dive into some of the passages that we love, that are intriguing to us you know whatever whatever word we want to use here's the first question in the second episode I, I asked you guys what you think holds these episodes together like you know are there threads themes whatever that make this episodic book that that bring them together that tie them together that, that hold it hold it um into a sort of unified whole and I would love to know if, having now read seven parts of this book, so an additional four parts, if the answers to that question have changed. I feel like that's one of those things worth coming back to just briefly to see, you know, how our perspective on that has changed. Tim, do you have any thoughts on that? What, what you think? You know, if you could, if you take the sections that we have been reading, and then you add them to the sections that we read earlier when we first were discussing that have the threads coming more into focus have they has your opinion changed on that
0: i'm going to hold for this episode to my contention that this is about uh father latour bringing order and father Vaillant bringing order to their parish i i think one thing that i've kind of shifted my mind on a little bit is the mode of storytelling which is now almost like more like mythos than than journalism i I think i described it last week as being journalistic and in some ways it is but i think that's because the eye of the narrator is somewhat omniscient and um i was thinking also that that myth has that kind of omniscient narrator also. So I'm going to stick for the time being with, this is a story about these two bishops bringing order to this new place. Um, I, I've just kind of shifted toward the mode of storytelling is I think a little bit more mythopoetic than I first recognized. How what do you think?
1: And, and let's also put a, pin in that comment that the story the mode is more okay. poetic yeah. because I feel like that's something Might that I need want some to explanation. know more about. Yeah, and I agree. yeah. Go ahead, Heidi. Let's, let's, uh, let's hear from you. my,
2: my original contention was that this is a book that's held together by the unfolding character of one man's great work. And I think that that's still true. Um, I do hold to that, but then zooming out a little bit, I also am noticing more in this reading of the, uh, contrast and union, um, and conflict and glory of multiple cultures meeting together. Um, and I think that that's explored. I'm noticing how much more that's explored in this particular reading than I did before. How about you, David?
1: I think, um, I think your answers are both, are both, uh, Fine. I was thinking about, okay, how, whatever. Yeah. You're, you're like, okay. Like I gave it's you like, a solid but B-. have a
2: mic drop moment no, no, no. coming up. Is that what-
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, but I was wondering if we should perhaps talk about the stock market for the next hour. Um, just, I mean, I know it's a book podcast, but the stock market's been volatile and people might want some stock market information from people who know nothing about the stock market, but have <laughs> opinions anyway. Um, no the only thing I was thinking that has been added to this since we last talked about it for me is it's much, it feels to me as if it's much more personal. The stories are becoming more personal in terms of these two characters, hmm. like um, more individual. Like we're getting, we're getting more particularly in in um, the great diocese chapter, especially the, the story with the old woman and father Vian, and then you get the stuff about their childhood and well, their, their seminary years, about their childhood. It seems like we're getting, it's becoming more personal. And in some ways that helps it become for me less episodic and more um, like th- it's being held together by the personalities and the dreams of these individuals. Um, and that, so that it, it makes it, I guess I'm just saying, it just makes it feel less episodic and helps, makes it feel more cohesive because we, we are getting all these random stories that people are telling them, which they go off and the story kind of veers off into. Um, But I do, uh, before we go away, I want to go back to what Tim was saying about the, the mode of the storytelling, because I know people are going to, there's going to be people listening who are going to say, whoa, 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 Tim, you've got to say more about that. So Tim, you've got to say more about that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh... Hey, you said it.
0: No, I did. And now I need to defend it. So <laughs> I, maybe like, let's contrast it with Lord of the Rings, which is very clearly mythopoetic, right? And we're discussing it, you guys are discussing it on the Patreon feed. Um, and I think the tone in some ways is similar to the Lord of the Rings and in some ways is more distant. I think both of them have a, like a semi-omniscient narrator. Um, and so in that way, they're similar, but there's something about, there's something about Cather's prose, which is um, very grand. Whereas I think there's something about Tolkien's character and plot, which is very grand, if that makes any sort of sense. So it's yeah. almost like the um, mythopoetic The mythopoetics of Cather is a mythopoetics of style, whereas I think for token, it's more a mythopoetics of scope and character, if that makes any sort of sense. Like, I I think that in reading this, Cather's ability to convey the natural world is breathtaking. Um, and It's interesting
1: that you use the word mythopoetics because it's it it, whether I mean I guess you may probably didn't mean it this way but it kind of presupposes the notion of it being a myth
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which I don't think it is I don't think it is
2: specific we're using myth in a very specific term that's not generally understood right like so when we're talking about when we're saying mythopoetic between us when we're talking about the myth we're talking about kind of like a primal story one of those stories that tells that attempts at least to provide context and meaning to human existence in a way that just the story of how you how the stock market is doing doesn't work doesn't really you know and um so when we say mythopoetic we mean a story that is attempting to kind of create almost like an archetypal field of meaning Mm. um and is populated by images and narratives and symbolism that would be recognizable in any culture and kind of has a meaning making ability within that culture. Hmm. And and I think that as you're talking about it, I am agreeing with you on that, Tim, although I hadn't even thought about it that way, which is curious and speaks to Cather's incredible ability as a stylist because she's so specific in her writing and so regional in her writing. And yet it has, as you're pointing out, this mythopoetic quality to it of this, like, you know, universal themes of human suffering and salvation and death and love and consumption and uh, all, all of these very, very primal human experiences are expressed in a very specific language and it does have the effect of being both regional and mythopoetic. And that is remarkable. That's remarkable.
1: You know, it's interesting because when you look at the story, there are some of the elements of traditional myth too, though. I mean, the way that these stories, these stories that are being passed on within the book, the stories within the stories that are being passed on through an oral oral tradition, like there are all these markers of, even ancient mythologies. And you combine that with the idea that, as Tim said, that they're trying to bring order to this world. There's, like, there's almost a world-making or a culture-making that they're participating in. Hmm. And that, that actually fits in with the notion of myth-making, right? And then if you take the idea that Christianity is the true myth, as Tolkien and Lewis would have said, they're bringing that already created myth to this world where it hasn't been firmly planted you know they're trying to present that myth so like the it's interesting that i hadn't thought about it like you said Heidi, i hadn't, it hadn't th- i would never ever thought to use the term that tim did but when you when you start unpacking it and like looking at the the different implications of that word it actually is really it, it brings out some things in the story that you, tim maybe you didn't even think of when you were saying it
0: and i'm not claiming that it's mythopoetic in, like the Odyssey is or like the Iliad is. Right, you right, know, right, there's right. something about those books, I think, that are very deliberately trying to, I wish you could re- remember your phrase exactly, Heidi. They're meaning-making narratives for an entire culture. And they, in essence, mm-hmm. are kind of saying, this is what the point of life is. Let me tell you the story of Odysseus. Because it, within Odysseus is everything that you need to know to live what our culture believes is the right kind of life, whether you're high-born, low-born, male, female, adult or child, this is what it should look like. And you can find it in this particular tale about Odysseus. I'm not claiming that's what Cather is attempting to do, but there's something grandiose in the style. That's why I'm like kind of like arguing that it's a it's a mythopoetics of style more than it's a mythopoetic of scope. I think. The Odyssey Mm -hmm. is of scope. Um, Lord of the Rings is of scope. And maybe even, David, like we've talked about, Lonesome Dove maybe is of scope also. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, but there's something about the descriptions of the terrain and also about the kind of... I hope I can articulate this. The narrator's distance from the characters is... Right. It's interesting, isn't it, Heidi? There's something about it where... We're not close to them. Like we get glimpses of their inner life, but we're not as near to them as, oh gosh, I mean, I think The Last Gentleman, the book we just finished, we were in the main character. The goer. The movie goer, I'm sorry. We were in the main, we were in Binks' belly. We were so close to him that like sometimes it felt suffocating and this is uh, that our narrator is pretty far away from the characters which is not to say that the narrator is not reading them accurately or doesn't know them it just seems like there's been a very deliberate choice to keep the characters at arm's length
1: mm-hmm. so speaking of that that brings me that comes to the second question that i had because throughout the most of the the book and our conversations we have been operating <clears throat> under the sort of a Assumption, I guess, that our main character is Father Latour. So then I started thinking: This time, is that is he is like if if there's a main character in this book, like a like sort of a protagonist? Do we still agree, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that that's Father Latour? How do you what do you think about that?
2: Oh yeah, I totally do. But I think we we see Vian as like very deeply in this particular section where we see his childhood um, and his character, uh, his, his contradictions. I, I mean, Cather's written such a compelling character in Vaillant that he's, uh, he's contradictory and yet still unified at the same time. And that's very human, right? Like it's like us, it's like, and and so I think that we do get to see maybe more of Vaillant because Latour is an introverted man like he is he's got a fastidiousness to him and a little bit of a distance he's uh he he is asked to go beyond the bounds of his natural inclination to be more of an introvert um and in his in his vocation as a bishop um he has to kind of set that aside and and be what he needs to be but Vian is drawn to people and um So we see he's, he's more of a transparent person and we get to see, but I still would argue that it's Latour because we're seeing Vyant through Latour's eyes here. Yeah. And we're staying with Latour while Vyant is gone and kind of examining him through the eyes of his friend.
1: But don't we also get times when Vyant's gone that we're with him?
2: We will soon. We we had one chapter,
0: didn't we? When he is at the Mm -hmm. Vatican that uh, Father Latour is gone. Is that, wait, I'm sorry. Right. Were you asking about Latour? Or yeah, when Latour Vyant. is gone, we have chapters where we're in Vyant without.
2: Yeah, yeah, like when he goes down into the Hidden Valley. and um, So, yeah, but I would still absolutely argue that Latour is, by, I mean, certainly the protagonist and Vion is a, a, his, not a sidekick. He's more than that, but he's, um, he's another character, but I don't think he's the
0: protagonist. This um Heidi and I were talking at when we finished recording our last Richard II episode on the plays the thing. I think that these chapters are thus far the best in the book. Um, and I think specifically the story about the woman that Father Latour It's so finds. compelling. What a story. Oh my gosh. To me, it's the <laughs> highlight. I I it's the best chapter i've read the best like collection of 10 pages that i've read in a really really long time i thought boy for the the podcast i would be happy to just read the entire chapter we're not going to do that but i just found you go on what did you love so
2: much about it i mean it like haunts me still the first time i read it i like closed it and i was like whoa
0: yeah it just like
2: sticks in your head it
0: really does so, so th- the part that yeah. I'm thinking is um, on me, for me, it begins on page 210, December night, December, um, December night. Um, and it's a story of Bishop Latour kind of going through kind of a time of of coldness in his faith or um, he's struggling. He's alone. Father Vaillant is dark gone. dark night of the Yeah. Soul. And this poor woman ends up at his in his parish and we hear her backstory about where she's come from about the kind of terrible situation that she's in with these this American family the Smiths who more or less keep her under lock and key and in this courageous moment she flees from them arrives at um the bishop's place and is just kind of desperate to see the holy, the holy relics. He brings her in. There's a moment where they worship together. And in, in doing this, in fulfilling this role, Father Latour's faith is rekindled. There's a section I wouldn't mind reading. I just thought it was just so wonderful. For me, it begins on two sixteen bottom of the page never as he afterward told father vaillant had it been permitted him to behold such deep experience of the holy joy of religion as on that pale december night he was able to feel kneeling beside her the preciousness of the things of the altar to her who was without possessions the tapers the image of the virgin the figures of the saints, the cross that took away indignity from suffering and made pain and poverty a means of fellowship with Christ. Kneeling beside the much enduring bondwoman, he experienced those holy mysteries as he had done in his young manhood. He seemed able to feel it all meant to her to know there was a kind woman in heaven, though there were such cruel ones on earth. Old people, who have felt blows and toil and know the world's hard hand, need, even more than children do, a woman's tenderness. Only a woman, divine, could know all that a woman could suffer. Not only, indeed, had Jean-Marie Latour come so near the fountain of all pity as in the Lady Chapel that night. No pity, excuse me, the pity that no man born of woman could ever utterly cut himself off from. That was for the murderer on the scaffold, as it was for the dying soldier or the martyr on the rack. the beautiful concept of Mary pierced the, pierced, pierced the priest's heart like a sword it's just wonderful, and what's what 's kind of remarkable about it is it 's this wonderful, joyful story, but it doesn't have a happy ending. Mm-hmm. The woman returns. This poor woman returns to the Smith household and she receives a promise that the priest will pray for her and will continue to remember her in his prayers. But it's not a story of the freedom from like the yoke of her masters, a spiritual freedom. Yes, but not, it doesn't culminate with a freedom in, um, for her body. She has to continue to endure That's a,
1: that's a great point. I was thinking while reading this week, how few of the episodes of this book are what you might call happy, happy endings, because I was thinking about how this book, every chapter in this book almost could be a a short story or not even every chapter, Mm. every section, you know, within the, within the books. So this could have been a short story and it would have ended with a sort of people would call it a um, ambiguous ending. Right. And I was thinking how almost every story in the book is like that even the story of Magdalena, who they came back to, right? They rescued her and they brought her to the convent and that was happy. But then they talk about how she might be more happy. They're not sure she might be more happy if she got married again. And then one of them is like, no, 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 she's good here. And the other one's like, not so sure. (laughs) And even that has this sort of ambiguity about what would make her most happy. Mm. So then I got thinking about how in many ways, this is a book, not about it's most, um, It's most hopeful moments are not about happiness. They're more about joy, maybe like that. There's a distinction in this book between someone being happy and someone being filled with joy and a section Mm -hmm. like the one you just read has a sense, not that she's going to be happy, but when he sends her away on the next page, he gives her, he gave it, he gave her a, a figure of the Virgin Mary that he had in his pocket. It says he gave it to her telling her that it had been blessed by the Holy father himself. Now she would have a treasure to hide and guard to adore while her watchers slept ah he thought for one who cannot read or think the image the physical form of love and i was thinking how she now has something to take joy in and that there's a spiritual joy there even as the stories don't end happily and that adds a level of depth and pathos to the book that you're not often going to find in a book that is essentially a series of episodic musings about this guys about a couple of characters spiritual journeys you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) go ahead Heidi it look like you were about to say something
2: I love that. that was my, that was my passage. We were, oh, you know, and you're like, pick a passage, but I, so now I don't have to. Um,
1: we read it again. We'll just that, read it over and over again for an hour.
2: I just I love this whole story, and I think another word for what you're describing, David, as opposed to happiness, you describe this deep joy that many of the characters experience, and the word I kept coming back to is the word consolation, that there's, there's Mm. these, there's so much, there's so much suffering. Mm. And I mean, there's so much suffering in this book and there's so much suffering in the world. I mean, we encounter it all the time. That's why books are written about suffering because we have to try to make sense of it. To your point about the mythopoeic project, right, is an attempt on the part of, of cultures and great writers to meaning make in a world that just doesn't make sense to us sometimes without some kind of intervention, right? And we need consolations. And this book is not afraid to say life is really hard. Mm -hmm. And the church can't fix that. Like, we can't fix it, um, no matter how much we might want to. But You can't read it. Is Is that what you mean? No, you can't. can't Yeah, I really... Eliminate, you can't fix the fact that this is a broken world and everybody has to endure to the end to be saved, right? And this is, but, but what you can do is give an image, a physical form of love. And that's the entire purpose. And in some ways, that's that is what this that is what this little image that he gives to her is it's consolation it's not elimination of suffering but it is a physical object that represents divine love and 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 that's in some in some sense what the sacramental life is right like that That there are things that are holy, there are moments that are holy, there are experiences that are truly holy in a broken world, and those things have a salvific power to the soul, into the body, into a culture, into a land, Um, and then to generations later once the story has been written down for us. And and that is, Hmm. I think, one of the great projects of literature is to, you know, literature itself in some ways is this physical object of love, Um, Hmm. but he gives her this little piece of of divine love. And it is, it is, it is enough for her for that day. Right. And that's, that's precious, but you're also then left as Tim's pointing out with this, with still being haunted by it because it, it's an unfinished, I mean, it's a sadness. It's greatly sad that she's a slave and that nobody can rescue her. That's terrible. And it haunts you even after you read it.
1: It's so interesting because you take this, the hauntedness of it, and then also you, mm-hmm. the, the, the sort of concept of these icons of consolation or, or however you want to put mm-hmm. it. And you can compare that directly with other scenes throughout the book where it talks, you know, for example, when they go to the cave, Latour goes to the cave with yes. um, Jacinto. And, and there's other times when they, go, when they look at all these different cultures' ways of coping, right? There's all these different icons of consolation that different cultures have used or turned to Uh, throughout history and like that it kind of all builds up to a moment like this. I wonder, and and I wonder if you're someone who is believes in what the Bishop and father, father, I believe in, you don't need a lot to be convinced of the pathos of a moment like this. Right. But I wonder if Cather building it up this way, giving us all these different icons of consolation that cultures have turned to sometimes, icons of consolation that are deeply embedded in a form of paganism even, but they're still icons of consolation that people were turned into within that culture. If in giving us this trail of icons of consolation leading up to this moment, if that adds to the pathos great
0: observation David. for a
1: reader <laughs> who was perhaps on the fence about the verat, the spirit, the veracity of the spiritual life that she is sort of exploring here. Yeah. So right. if, and even for That's me, I was point. thinking, Oh, it builds du- up. This this is like, other things that other people were turning to and it shows that if nothing else it reveals or just con- confirms that humans have this innate well we have an innate desperation to find to cope <laughs> right Amen. so oh, and we turn to we're going to turn to some kind of an icon of consolation and i don't know i don't remember if that's the word you said i don't think you did but that's just mm-hmm.
2: it's, it's a, a really good phrase him. to describe exactly what i meant yes hmm
0: I think it's especially poetic that this section falls after another kind of icon of consolation or someone seeking an icon of consolation. Um, the
1: Doña Isabella chapter.
0: Oh, my goodness. Which was so it was more comical than anything else. But I mean, I think. With this undercurrent of, of like tra- tragedy. Yeah. <laughs> r- real tragedy. So this isn't you have a great book for women. Of-
1: <laughs> and I don't mean like it's not a book that women should read. I mean the women in it don't have great experiences.
2: <laughs> I have several comments on that, but after not and to <laughs> go, to on, go on, I, I want to hear what you were going to say first yeah. because yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, sorry, I'm, sorry, I'm really sorry. interested. Well, just to recount the story briefly, Doña is Isab- a wait, Doña Olivares.
2: Yeah, it is Isabel. Olivares That's her first name.
0: Is um her husband a wealthy man? Dies. She's a devoted Catholic. He kind of by relation is a devoted Catholic. And um, in order to inherit his wealth, his wealth is being disputed by his two brothers. But in order to inherit the wealth, she, uh, Doña Olivares, must testify publicly about her age, which is terrifying to her. She really does not want to. In fact, I'm going to read just a little bit. Father Vaillant, goes to her and chastises her. How can you not just be willing to stand up in court and say your true age so that you can receive your inheritance? Otherwise, these two brothers will have it. You will be poor. You'll be impoverished, et cetera, et cetera. Father Vaillant tries to temper him a little bit, and but also really wants... Madame Olivares to be able to get this money. She needs to testify in court. So, for me, on page 191, Father Latour glanced sternly at his vicar. I says, he said quietly. He took the little hand Father Joseph had released and bent over it, kissing it respectfully. We must not press this any further. We must leave this to Madame Olivares and her co- own conscience. I believe my daughter. You will come to realize that this is the sacrifice of your vanity, that this sacrifice of your vanity would be for your soul's peace. Looking merely at the temporal aspect of the case, you would find poverty hard to bear. You would have to live upon the Olivari's charity charity, would you not? I do not wish to see this come about. I have a selfish interest. I wish you to be always your charming self and to make a little posy in your life for us here. We have not much of that. Madame Olivares stopped crying. She raised her head and sat drying her eyes. Suddenly, she took hold of one of the buttons of the father's cassock and began twisting it with nervous fingers. Father, she said timidly, what is the youngest I could possibly be to be Inez's mother? The bishop could not produce the verdict. He hesitated, flushed, and then passed it on to O'Reilly, who's the lawyer, with an open gesture of his fine white hand. 52, Senora Olivares, said the young man respectfully. If we can get you to admit that and to stick to it, I feel sure we will win the, win our case. So eventually she does go to court. She does. <laughs> she does admit her true age, and then later at a party, everyone is surrounding her. She makes a little joke like, how terrible you were, Bishop, to force me to exaggerate my age in front of the whole court. You, you, you forced me to lie. And her party laughs and they appreciate the joke because they, they kind of, you know, they know what her real age is. And so it's this woman kind of really struggling with the vanity of losing her youth of having to kind of compromise or having to kind of um, share her true age and by doing so be a little bit embarrassed, but also kind of like reap the benefits of uh, the, you know, the wealth that she'd accumulated with her husband. And so to, to contrast that story with the woman in the subsequent story who is suffering like genuine impoverishment has no money has no freedom, has no access to any of those things, I think makes the second story even more poignant.
1: Mm-hmm. It, would this be a good time to transition to Heidi's comments on how this is not a great <laughs> world for women? It seems <laughs> like a time. semi-natural transition time.
2: <laughs> I, I think that I've been thinking a lot about how women are, that the female characters in this book. And most of them are just part of a specific vignette. Right. And as set, when you're part of a vignette, you have like a very strong temporary presence and that determines the ethos of the tale being told. And, um, so even though we don't necessarily have women characters that are, uh, taking place in the whole narrative, um, the, their presence is so striking when they're there because they're in a vignette. Um, and so it's like very sharp relief. And so I was thinking a lot about the different women here with Dona Isabella, and I think she's a great example of this. I think when you have stories about either celibate or single men interacting with women, there's like an interesting kind of dynamic because you have to take the dynamic as non sexually charged unless it's, you know, part of the narrative. So Most stories of interactions between men and women are like men, a man and woman falling in love, but not when you have two priests having a relationship with multiple women over time. Right. And so I was thinking a lot about that and the role that women play in these men's lives. And it does seem like women are there's like a tenderness and a protectiveness that they have over these these women, whether they're Mexican women or even Dona Isabella or the native women, um, they rescue Magdalena, for example. And there's that really sweet moment that they have when they watch her and the birds landing on her in the garden um, in book seven. And, and then Father Viant calls to her to come talk to them. And he says, Two men are lonely. Uh, and if they only have each other to talk to and they're like awed by this woman and they notice her beauty, but they're not in love with her. And I think there's something really precious about that in a story when they see, when a man sees a woman as beautiful, but not like his, Mm -hmm. you know, to possess or pursue, um, there's something like very like lovely about the nature of beauty in such a little vignette, um, and then how much they want to just talk to her. I, I, there's, they're so drawn to these women, even joining Isabella, even though she turns out to be kind of foolish and vain and all of those things, still she has, as Bishop Latour says to her, like, we need you to create a culture here. Like, we need you to create like softness and poetry and music and light and interaction and conversation. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and it seems that that's, that's something that a, cultured woman offers to a man, even if he's not married to her, you know? And, and so there's just these little things that these little moments throughout the story, this moment with this woman who is a slave and how it, how he wants to rescue her, but he can't, so he can only console her and, and what that does to him and how that reawakens his faith. It just so like, I've just been paying attention to that. It is a hard world for women and these priests do what they can to help, but it's very clear that they see women differently than they see men. And I, I like seeing how a man looks at a woman he's not in love with through a priest's eyes, you know?
0: Hmm.
1: I think it's really important that Tim read that passage mm-hmm. that he read on 217 or whatever it was. Yeah. 217 where it says, seemed able to feel all it meant to her to know there was a kind woman in heaven, though there were such cruel ones on earth. And then, um, the beautiful concept of Mary pierced the priest's mm-hmm. heart like a sword. Those two lines are really important to what you're saying, because I think that you, you mentioned they have like a capacity for tenderness, or or uh-huh. um, to 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 want to take care of these women. I don't remember the exact phrase that you used. I think you used something like that. And I think that that capacity for tenderness is a direct outcome, or an um, like an embodiment even of their spiritual commitments their spiritual sensitivities as well their tradition yeah, and so yes it, you know, there's a direct correlation between F- bishop latour's the way he looks at this poor woman and his theology his mariology right <laughs> his, his theology yes, of mary exactly and he sees her in that way and is able to interact with her or, or in that way on the one hand because the because she longs to have a spiritual experiences and a spiritual life that he, that they both, that they shared, that they both believe in, but also because of the way he understands and thinks about Mary, this figure. Um, And, and I think that that's, so then that becomes his ability to interact with her is is on the one hand, yes, he's, he's a sensitive soul, right? But the sensitivity of his soul is informed by and transformed by the theology. There's an embodiment the, the theology in these moments is no longer abstract. It's, it's, right. There's an incarnation, if you will, if I can use the word mm-hmm. loosely. It, it, his theology is becoming incarnated by his love and care for a person who desperately needs him. You I s- and I think that also comes up when Vion talks. Was it, no, who was it that talks about the idea of, yeah, Vion, he's talking about wanting to go out to the people who need him. Because those are the people that when, when Christ talked about the idea of being like a little child, he thinks of those people, the people that these people, you know, the sort of, I guess they're just the, the poor native people, right? And Bishop Platour is saying, well, I need you here. And he says, no, I have to go out and do that. And that's, that's an embodiment of the incarnation of his theology. Um, and I think that that's coming into more focus as the book progresses here. In I this agree. Section.
2: Well, and another example of that comes even later with um, the Navajo host. Um, later in
1: chapter in book seven.
2: Yes, and who, what's the his grade.
1: name?
2: Usabio. Yeah. So it is, you're exactly right. I love what you're saying. That This is, and, this and is maybe chapter three this of part is,
1: seven, spring in the Navajo country. Yes, yeah.
2: maybe this is what makes it mythopoeic is the idea of these icons of consolation across multiple cultures manifesting itself through the way that these priests are meeting all of these cultures and mm. all of these vignettes, right? Mm. Um, and then also, because... To your exact point, we see how the church and their theology informs their relationships and their ministry, and their vocation, but it's not just them either. Eusebio, for example, there's this amazing description of how he's, how following him uh, when they're traveling back to Santa Fe is like, what does it say that he's, it's like a landscape, the landscape marked having it, a person. Yeah. Oh, traveling with so Eusebio
0: was like traveling with a landscape made human. What page, what page yes. is that on Tim? 232.
2: That's so beautiful. Right. And it's, and that, and then they describe, he describes how he's watching Latour's well, he doesn't describe it. The narrator describes it. Uh, Latour watching all the Indians travel and the difference between how they travel through the land yeah. versus how the white man travels through the land. Um, and that. And so, and that is exactly what you're saying. This is the Indian culture, then the native culture being manifested in the way that they walk, they take a walk through the land, uh, that what they believe and how they have been formed manifests itself in the real world. And, uh, and this book is in many ways, a record of all of these multiple, very deep formations coming together in the same place. Mm and the same time and how they interact with each other and how they influence each other. Um, And, and I just, I think maybe that's what is contributing to kind of that, that, that sense of being populated by these like archetypal images and these archetypal experiences, the mythopoeic uh, statement that you made earlier, Tim. I'm wondering if, if that, that kind of threads of formation coming together and manifesting in the same place Uh, from different perspectives is part
0: of that. I wonder, Heidi, if I could read the section that you're talking about just to kind of give a little flavor to what you're saying. So good. Please do. So 232 to 233. Traveling with Eusebio was like traveling with a landscape made human. He accepted chance and weather as the country did with a sort of grave enjoyment. He talked little, ate little, slept anywhere, preserved a countenance open and warm, and, like Jacinto, He had unfailing good manners. The bishop was rather surprised that he stopped so often by the way to gather flowers. One morning, he came back with the mules holding a bunch of crimson flowers, long tube-shaped bells that hung lightly from one side of the naked stem and trembled in the wind. The Indians call flower, rainbow flower, he said, holding them up and making the red tubes quiver. It is early for these. When they left the rock or tree or sand dune that had sheltered them for the night, the Navajo was careful to obliterate every trace of their temporary occupation. He buried the embers of the fire and the remnants of the food, unpiled any stones he had piled together, filled up the holes he had scooped in the sand. Since this was exactly Jacinto's procedure, Father Latour judged that, just as it was the white man's way to assert himself in any landscape, to change it, make it over a little, at least leave some mark of memorial on his sojourn. It was the Indians way to pass through a country without disturbing anything to pass and leave no trace, like fish through water or birds through the air. Like fish through water or birds through the air. It's like,
2: Unbelievable. I don't know how you could
0: finish much better.
2: than I that. I know. It's amazing.
1: That's the, um, the, American version of an epic simile right there. Mm. I, I actually think about this a lot, that there might be an American, there actually might be a form of things like the epic simile that each culture sort of remakes in their own image, if you will. And I think that there's a, um, that this generation of American writers began to form an American, American canon of expression. That's uniquely American that you got with like Hemingway and Gatsby and all these guys and 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 Cather and um, Wharton and kind of building off of Twain, who was transforming these European ways of writing, and then these become these uniquely American and like a line like that has a very epic simile vibe, but in a per- epic simile tone, but in a very American vibe. That's a different conversation for a different day, though.
0: Well, David, say a little bit more about uh, first what's an Amer what's an epic simile, and then. Uh, what might make it more okay, hold American? On. Is it I'm just
1: going to go to Wikipedia real fast and pretend that I know it. No, I'm just kidding. Um,
0: it's a really long
2: simile. <laughs> it's epic.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the whole journey. It's a, It's a, it's yeah. a simile so that takes you on a journey. It
2: would be like yeah. birds through the waters of the Ocean crashing upon the waves. <laughs> I, no, about birds, fish, like so, because yeah. birds don't go in the ocean. <laughs>
1: well, some, some birds go in the ocean to get their food. I
2: guess so. Maybe that's Have you never been mood, to the beach? Though. It was just a mistake. <laughs> yes. So, but it would be really long. That's that's an epic. Simile. Yeah, and then like you know, in the epics.
1: Yeah, go to Homer and you know find a simile, find that word like or as, and they go on for a while. And
2: look for ten lines later, <laughs> <and the> story <laughs> <Yes>. goes on.
1: <laughs> but they're also often. Um, many times an expression of something more than just like the comparison itself is meant to be noticed. It's meant to, there's a, they're meaning making themselves. Um, And you could just say, oh, this is just any kind of simile, right? But epic similes are one of the markers of a lot of ancient literature, right? Like a Homeric simile is one of the things that like, I don't know if, I, I don't know if people, the scholars would actually say this, but he kind of invented them in a way. Like, maybe he didn't literally invent them, but he invented, he, perfected he, he them. helped perfect the, them as a device. And so you could say, well, these are just similes. But a lot of American writing that has the sparse characteristics of Hemingway or Cather or something like that, anybody can create, can just write a simile. But being able to write a simile that is actually um, representative, that in a way creates an objective correlative for the world and the culture that you're writing from that's a different question and i think that when you started to get into the early 20th century uh uniquely american literature was beginning to be created out, out mm-hmm. of you know it was becoming its own thing aside from the literary influences now you can't discard the liter- the european literary influences but an american voice maybe is a better way of saying it was forming and they were beginning to create use age old ancient literary devices but in a way that was an objective correlative for the American experience. Yeah.
2: Experience. Yeah. 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 I think, I mean, there's, there's some debate with me on this, on the Facebook page and that was fine. That's, I love the debate on the Facebook page, but there were some claims that this there are people could, taking issue with you. Yeah. Um, Cause I said, this was a uniquely American novel. And I think I still stand by that. Although I, I understand uh, the specific point that was being made, in this <clears throat> one comment, I, I think that she's bringing up some really good points. But one of the reasons why I stand by it is is what you're saying there there is this American voice within within this novel um dealing with um the American question of what to do with the new world in the old world in the same place um and the 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 potential for violence in that uh as well as the potential for unity um as and then on the other hand she's also telling this story in i think just a beautifully american way with this sparse prose but very descriptive very regional um and um yeah how what other words would you use to describe the american voice guys or how else would you describe it
0: that's such a hard question
2: it is isn't it and me yeah. and i asked it and because today like what david just said i think is really true that within each culture there arises a voice but when you're immersed in it you can't always name it you can't always find it right it's just the way we yeah. think and breathe and the way we write stories right and yeah. so but how do you how do you zoom out from your own culture and look at your literary output and say, this is what it means to write in an American voice? Um We can say that with Russians. like I feel like I could pick up well, a novel and know whether it's been translated from the Russian, right? like um, okay, just because okay, there's ha, so an, a Russian voice well, can you,
1: like it, like yes. if you just had if someone just says what are the characteristics of a Russian novel, what are you gonna say?
2: Uh, like, like a, a lot of suffering and snow um and a and a very like uh deep introspection uh, in and in a really strong um specific emotional reactions to certain events right um so you know lots of like throwing things down on the table and that kind of thing there's a lot of that in russian literature um but i mean really it's just this emphasis on suffering and the meaning of life as coming from suffering Um, And that's not American, right? I mean, we might, some Americans think that way, but you're not going to pick up a novel that has the same kind of like obsessive introspection about the experience of existential suffering and cold that a Russian novel does.
1: Right. And just to clarify, someone could write an American novel and not tap into some of the things that are like unique about the American voice
2: sure like, yeah
1: mm-hmm. the, in terms of when you think of the larger canon American literature you got i mean the alienation
0: mm-hmm.
1: um the relationship with the frontier, you know um the real American voice comes begins to be built out of um frontier literature that's where that's where it starts, and then it runs through it that that it begins to interest in my opinion this is mm-hmm. i mean. I didn't come up with all this, but this is, this is my, my combination of theories. It begins with the frontier. It crosses with the transcendentalists in Mark Twain. And then out of that, it begins, that leads directly to the early 20th century. And that co that clashes with world war one. And so then you get what becomes modern modernism, American modernism from there. And so alienation, the frontier, um, uh, And both the alienation and the frontier are, in my opinion, are what lead to a specific sort of sparseness that begins to characterize American writing. Because there's a ruggedness to that that sort of, the ruggedness of an American frontier, the experiences of being alone on it, of trying to create culture out of that, I believe are one of the things that led to the sparseness of early 20th century American writing. Go ahead. I really
2: like that. I also think one of the characteristics of, the American voice is the dissonance of the American ideal with the American experience. Like that. And, and, and I think that a lot of um, I think, I think slavery is a huge part, a huge part of the legacy of the American voice as well.
0: Yeah. I, I think, I mean, the, the kind of contrast of freedom and slavery mm-hmm. is huge. a constant Subject
2: multiple generations and centuries in American, like that's what I mean. The dissonance between what America said it is Mm -hmm. and what America actually turned out to be. Yeah, that dissonance is where American literature dwells. I think.
0: I I wonder if I I don't know my history well enough to say this, but I suspect that Harriet Beecher Stowe's The Popularity of Uncle Tom's Cabin Mm -hmm. is one of the first to kind of uh, draw attention to this. Rift. I don't mean to suggest that it it wasn't there before her, but I don't think I, I think of somebody like Nathaniel Hawthorne fully aware of, of the kind of inconsistency right. that was slavery. But I don't remember him writing much about it as this like deep natural scar, this wound that you know we're still dealing with today and are going to continue to deal with. You know, I, I just wonder if. Um. Yeah, Harriet Beecher Stowe. What did Lincoln say about her? So this is the woman who started the Civil War. You know like there's this there's this sense that that book of literature really brought attention to a thing that people Didn't did he not call want her to a, address. Little yeah, a little lady that started the Yeah, little lady, the little lady that started the big war. <laughs> yeah. Big war. He said it more eloquently than I just recounted it.
2: No, I don't know. That seems a little condescending to me.
0: So <laughs> Wait, kind of sitting toward Lincoln or toward me? You're the You're little towards- lady
2: that started. The
0: oh, I see. <laughs> no. I see. Well, but I thought so. I kind
2: of like the way you said it better. <laughs> is what I'm saying. I thought he
0: was referring to the fact that she was actually just physically very petite.
2: That is probably true. I really like that. That,
0: that yeah. interpretation. <laughs>
2: Thank you. So so charitable.
1: Today's episode of the Close Reads podcast is brought to you by Thales College in Raleigh, North Carolina, a new college that integrates liberal arts and professional education at an affordable cost. You don't have to choose either liberal arts or a job related major in education. Thales College combines both to provide the best possible preparation to help students thrive in both life and work. The cost of college is out of control today because of bloated administrations, enormous athletic programs, and luxurious, unnecessary amenities. Most schools have become too expensive to be a responsible choice for students. By contrast, Thales College was designed with a business model that actually makes sense for students who want to make their first major investment as an adult a responsible choice. Thales College students will draw a profound understanding of humanity and society from the deep wells of Western civilization, gain pertinent job experience through internships, and accumulate actual professional skills in college instead of student debt. Currently, there are professional tracks in both entrepreneurial business and mechanical engineering. For more information, head over to thalescollege.org. That's org. No,
2: oh, I want to hear more from David because he loves this. these formal invoice oriented questions. We're giving you the floor. Well,
1: I, I had the misfortune of being, I had to mute my line and help someone who's helping me at the bookstore for a second. So I kind of missed like a minute and a half of conversation Well, you can there. just and pick up where you left off. It was... I don't yeah. know where <laughs> I was. Let me ask you guys. this
0: question, David. Is, Derailed. Is the voice, the kind of like American voice that we were discussing, do you think it is a... I'm going to give you three choices. A tone, a series of preoccupations, like the frontier would be one, Slavery and freedom would be two others, um, or some combination of tone and preoccupations.
1: Voice, but in my opinion, voice by definition is tone, style, and preoccupation. That's what makes voice. So what it you, is. the
0: answer is all of those things.
1: Yeah, I think that's what def- I think. You can't set when when you talk about this writer has a voice. What they're doing is finding a unified way of expressing. maybe maybe I should say they're finding a stylish, I don't use the word style loosely, a stylish way of expressing their preoccupations through a specific tone. Maybe, I mean, maybe for your sake, for the sake of conversation here, tone and style are the same thing. I don't, we could dive into that a little bit deeper. I'm not sure. But to me, voice by definition is the confluence of style, tone, or mood and preoccupation. Mm -hmm. Like that's how I would define it.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, I don't know. I'm sure that like, Joseph Campbell or Derrida or C.S. Lewis or someone would uh take issue with that. Shakespeare
0: probably he wouldn't like that but let's
2: get all yeah. those guys around a table and talk about literature. I love it.
0: Can I exclude Derrida? I've really fallen out no, with him. He's I've got fallen to be out there. with him. Yeah, I and don't if know. We're
2: having a literary conversation about style in the 20th I
1: century. I just said he probably would disagree with me, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I this is I an think- amateur take on, what's, on what voice means. Just as someone who's thinking about, no, okay, trying to create you was, your own right. voice as a writer, how do you, like, is there a way to get there besides just doing it for a long time? And like, just because you write a lot doesn't mean you're ever going to come to a voice. So how do you begin to, to understand how to create a voice or help a writer think about their own voice as a writer? Go ahead, Heidi.
2: Yeah, well, I was just thinking like, if we were to, granted that there is such a thing as a cultural voice and that there are novels that, embody that. If I were to put down on a table, like a unlabeled three pages from a novel, from an American novel, a British novel, a Russian novel, and I don't know, like a South American novel, right? Would you be able to pick it up? Granted what I said, would you be able to pick up those three pages and identify which one is which?
1: The ones from South America would probably be in Spanish or Portuguese. And the ones they'd from Russia translated. would be in Russia.
2: They, no, they'd be translated. And Give, the all from right. England would be in set Gaelic. We should the terms better. Just say yes or no. Would you? I would. would you? I think I would. I, I think, would. think I most think I people would.
1: that read a lot would be able to. I,
0: yes. I dispute this. I actually think no. If, the nature of
1: translation is complicated, though.
0: Granted, that's true. But I think if you could remove the kind of signifying Preoccupations, let's say, of the Russians and the Americans and South, Amer- South Americans, if you could remove those kind of typical signifiers and we you could only don't identify You sound with, like
2: you've fallen out with Derrida right now.
0: <laughs> really? I don't?
1: Using <laughs> words like signifiers.
2: I'm yeah, so i do, you're, right, do. you're right. You're right. I was yeah, like,
1: yeah. this is a
0: Derrida, but you're right. The signifiers thing is like, I'm so sorry. Derrida. I'm sorry. That was such a nerdy joke. Yeah, that was a, Please that go that was on. Good, that was a good joke. <laughs> you have a slow audience. Um, <laughs> I actually, so I'm kind of disputing if American voice, how do I say this? I absolutely agree that different nations, different continents are preoccupied with different subjects and different ways. And kind of like, I would say there are different dilemmas that bother that that unresolved bothered different writers, writers from different nationalities. I'm not as sure that there is enough cohesion of let's call it tone among these nationalities that you could pick out without like these without these dilemmas being talked about: freedom, frontier, suffering, winter. I don't well, know. Well, they would good. be
2: though. Like, I think that you could, I, that it, if those are all part, I mean, David just contended that those were part of, of voice and I agree with him. So if you have voice style, if, I mean, excuse me, if you have preoccupation style and tone, and I take three pages out of the middle of a novel in that's been translated into English.
1: You know, do you think though, so I, I'm feeling like maybe I'm a little on the, on the, Disagree. I'm gonna disagree with myself for here for a minute. I wonder if it's possible though that, like, if you were to do that, if you were to do that exercise, you are most likely going to choose canonical works from within those those countries.
2: Yeah, dead yeah. giveaway. Canon. Some guy named right. Raskolnikov. Well, so, so, <laughs> so gonna, a lady with an
1: axe, <laughs> right? So let's Might just say Russian. you take three random pages from Russian literature. You're most likely taking like Dostoevsky's Tolstoy, Chekhov. Sure there's like five in American, you're probably going to do, you're going to be like, well, who are the five? So then you're going to choose Twain, Fitzgerald, whoever. Um, Same with the British, same with South, South American writing, um, which which for the South Americans, they got a whole continent. So it's good for them. So if you do that, then what you're doing is you're actually looking at literature from that culture within a specific time. And what you might be able to discern more clearly between them to Tim's point is the literature of the, the age, like Dostoevsky, is going to be different than Hemingway. It's going to be different than like, you know, um, Austin or something like that. If you took writing from the exact same year from each of those countries, I wonder how that that would be a very interesting exercise. Or like, say, take, take I know, the same I decade. know I really want to do this um, because bef- genre was different. Like genre is a twenty. In terms of the big differences between genre, that's a relatively new thing. Mm-hmm. Um, True that'd be fascinating. We, this, we should get like Karen Swallow on really here to discuss this. Uh, discuss yes. this or something. I think, cause I think that you're both right in a sense, because I think that I, I don't know. I don't know just how to say it. Like, I think there is a sense in which you can definitely get, you can look at something and say, well, this is Russian literature. This is American literature. And it wouldn't be that hard. The, to me, the problem is translation is going to be so the exercise that gets upended by translation because whoever translates it is going to bring their own preoccupations and their own tonal inclinations to it. Like you read Constance Garnett and you're that could easily have been That's a great like point. an 1890s British novel, like, right? Totally.
2: I'd be like it's Dickens.
1: <laughs> right, it could be you could read the, her version of Crime and Punishment and it could be Great Expectations or That's Tale of, of Two point. Cities or something. So the the translation part might might throw a wrench in it. Um, but I do think I would contend, though, that there is a difference that is uniquely Russian from a Chekhov story or a Dostoevsky story and a Poe or Hawthorne story, and at least one of the differences between those stories is defined by their um, birthplace. <laughs> um, Maybe not. Maybe the contention here—I doubt you disagree with that too. Maybe the contention is—is it a defining difference? I don't.
0: I, I will try to articulate right now because I'm not quite sure if I understand the rules of the discussion. So I'll just try to assert what I understand the rules to be. I agree. It's anarchy that nationalities have certain preoccupations. That's undeniable. Well somebody could deny that, but I, I believe that <laughs> what I'm, you, you believe that I believe that. And I think, I think the three of us probably believe that at least based on this discussion, the three of us believe that I am not sure that the, let's call it the style of writing, the tone, the non-particular, so, so sentence structure, word choice, et cetera, et cetera. I would bet that If you took a British writer from the twentieth century and an American writer from the twentieth century, let's say post nineteen fifty, I bet you that we, professional readers, to some degree, would have a really hard time discerning the difference. And I I can already hear the pushback. But Tim, they they write like they talk. They talk, you know. And I'm like, on the page, no, no. I would read that in. We would read that into it.
1: It's the era then. More than it is... I think
0: it's the era more than the nationality. Again, again, the nationality's preoccupations with certain ideals or a failure to achieve certain ideals, I think those are really embedded in culture and nationality. But I'm less convinced about tone, grammar. This is not...
1: This then, to bring it back around, is not an American book. It's a book from 1927.
0: No, I think it's an American book. It's, It's dealing with really american preoccupations and i think it has like its style well i'll just leave that off can you
1: if you take away the preoccupations then so so your contention is you sounds like you would agree with me then that voice to have an american voice you have to have the preoccupations correct is it possible then so maybe does does that does that does that then translate to an individual person's voice like does the is the individual person's voice also a matter of Preoccupation, as I was contending earlier. See,
0: I, I'm not sure I understand. An individual so like, if author's you have an, voice?
1: Yeah, an individual author's voice. Is that also a matter of preoccupation? Like, So maybe that's you can't... So if, if the American voice is tone, style, and preoccupation, if that's, and you take one of those things out and it kind of begins to fall apart, then is that also true of the individual writer? Like, is your voice as a writer the intersection of those three things. I think so. So if you take out the preoccupation, just the style itself is not enough to make a voice. I think so. Yeah, I think, I, I think that's what I'm contending. I think, I think that was what I was arguing. <laughs> um, but I also don't really know what I said, so this is what you get for like three people just thinking out loud and recording it. Well, here we are. <sighs> a good conversation. But Heidi, you're not sure.
2: No, I think, I I think that that's true. I'm trying to think of authors that I, who have written, you know, a canon of work, a body of work. And it is true that most of them have a collection of, um, preoccupations, but I think probably no author wants to maybe, maybe, maybe they do. Maybe authors are like, this is what I want to write about for my entire career, um, so, but it, it seems like most authors would wish to, you know, be able to write about anything and, um, but most we, of them so I know should, have preoccupations.
1: Yeah. Like if you read a Dickens book, you kind of have a general sense yeah, of what you're going to get.
2: I think that's true. And I, I think that I've never really, I've never really thought about plural that. Is okay as well. Right, yeah, plural, of course, you know, and you look at some, I mean, even what we talked about last week, you look at somebody like Wendell Berry, and it's clear he's setting out to do something. He's intentionally preoccupied with certain questions about individual life and communal life and American life. Um, But then you look at somebody like Shakespeare, right, way on the other end of the spectrum, um, and... Does he have certain preoccupations? He, he sure does. But he also is well known for his negative capability, which means his ability to distance himself and not impose his opinions. But he still has preoccupations. Um, leadership, kingship, yeah, kingly rule, um, lo- um, right, and um, uh, romantic love—the difference, but the, the movement from yeah. friendship with to love, those kinds of things. Those are he he writes about the same kinds of things. So even though he's not necessarily making some kind of moral or political statement with his writings, um, <laughs> yeah, and which he's yeah. often criticized for, he still has certain preoccupations, things he's always writing about.
1: Yeah, when I think of preoccupations, I think of the, the idea of an author's. Interests, so the things they're consumed by, the the things that are meaningful to them, less than the points that they're trying to make.
2: Exactly. Have you guys? Which I, oh, go ahead.
0: Well, I, I because I write so much, I um, I've discovered things about your
1: preoccupations. Yes,
0: I, I do, and one of the things that's helped me discover them is I look back on you know like old notebook entries or I keep a series of um, note cards on my computer. And I've got like, maybe I've talked about this before, maybe 20 different labels for note cards. So art, history, philosophy, et cetera, et cetera. And I go back and I read through those note cards, which are basically clipped quotes from books, from magazines, from web essays. I go back and I look at those and I'm always talking about the same stuff, Over and over and over and over, I'm just obsessed with the same stuff. And I'm like, of course I am. This is like, you know, I think if we, we get kind of, um, we all have certain issues that we are trying to solve or figure out. And some of these just never go away. They're the ones that we were kind of raised to try to solve and, We hopefully make a little bit of progress, but it doesn't mean they leave us if we do make some progress. And I'll tell you, the one that is like preoccupies me more than anything else, I will tell you what it is. It is the relationship between an individual and the individual's community that he feels some sort of like respect, allegiance, thankfulness for. Everything that I like, whenever I think about anything, I'm always thinking about that. Dilemma, because um, it is just a dilemma. I think there, my two of my favorite philosophers kind of belong on either side of that spectrum. Like Alistair McIntyre is all about the like, communal formulation of virtue and moral goods, and Kierkegaard is the opposite. He swings toward no; it's the individual asserting himself against the kind of. Um, tired tyranny of the crowd you know and so there's this there's this dilemma that i've been trying to solve my entire life and i think a couple years ago i thought why are you trying to resolve it there's not a resolution there's not gonna be a moment you're like oh i figured it out i've got the I, i finally figured it out no it's just this tension and kind of like accentuating both aspects of the tension and like navigating those two those two Ideals um, through the use of wisdom is a good thing to attempt to do. So all that to hmm. lead into what are you guys, do you guys do? Do you know what your preoccupations are? Do you even know? Before you,
1: before you move on, though, I think that what you're pointing out is that all writers, I, unless they decide for it not to be this way, um, thoughtful writers. Plots, like the dilemma at the core of a plot, is usually driven by their um. What was the word? Preoccupations. <laughs> Preoccupations. Yeah, yeah. I think that's generally where the, the core problem or dilemma in the middle of a story it derives from some question about something they're preoccupied with, and usually that's why a lot of the times you can look at a, a writer's canon and be like, they're kind of a lot of the same. Dilemmas Mm. with different things wrapped around Mm. them. Like look at Mark Twain, you know, a lot of the times they're a similar thing at its core that he's exploring in a new way. Um, The human mind doesn't have the capacity to deeply explore that many things. Um, And that's why most of us get preoccupations and we try to work them out for our whole lives. Cause we just can't only, I mean, very few of us can only explore that many things in true depth. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. that's why we have becomes specialists at things. <laughs> Heidi, were you going to say something?
2: Well, I like Tim's question, but I was going to say, what do you think Willa Cather's preoccupations
1: mm. are? Which is goes back to the threads question, I think.
2: Yeah, no, that's that's exactly why. Because I thought, oh, that's like full circle. Because David was asking about the threads. Do we yeah. see the same preoccupations in, in these threads that we've claimed tie the narrative together?
1: I think one of her preoccupations is the human longing to this goes, this ties to Tim's the human longing for order. Even when you live in the wilderness. And that's why I think the work that Tim has pointed out of Bishop Latour and Father Vaillant about bringing order to the wilderness is so crucial because all the people they are interacting with have an innate longing for that order. Now, whether they think that Father Latour, Bishop Latour and Father Vaillant are going to bring the kind of order that they actually want you know, that's, that's part of the problem. Cause people, they're not, everyone s- sees the possibilities that they're bringing. But I think that's one of them mm-hmm. that humans have this longing for, to make, to have meaningful order uh, in, you know, broken world. Seems like one of them
0: to me anyway. Heidi, do you have an answer to your question?
2: I think, I mean, I'm thinking about her other books that I've read. I haven't read all of them. Yeah. Um, alienation. It's another one. Well, and I was going to just about to say that. And um, and that's, there's that uniquely American voice, right? The alienation and then the, and manifest destiny, which I think goes somewhat to what David was saying you we're saying it more on an individual level, and then I think there's also kind of a cultural there's a cultural level i mean that's that's a very cultural world we're a very American cultural word manifest destiny and um she seems to to i'd see that a lot in this novel that there's some kind of destiny that that each of the characters feel like they must fulfill in order to have lived a meaningful life Mm. to David's point. And then I also think the collision of
1: America is just full of a bunch of threes who are crafting the American narrative.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Um, And then the collision I'm thinking about her other novels as well. The collision of uh, disparate or dissonant experiences, attempting to find some kind of um, unity or resolution in their clash
0: no. Do you mean dissonant cultural experiences?
2: I really mean disparate. disparate. I don't really mean dissonant. I really mean just different, like cl- the collision of disparate elements or experiences coming together. Um, and, Alien and, people and,
1: trying to make community
2: and have yes, yes, and that's one aspect of it. Um, that the multiple cultures that we see in this novel, in other novels, it's a lot about going west and dealing with. Um, obstacles along the way, um, including you know, you know, dangers from without and tempt- you know, and temptations from within. That kind of thing. They're very, very, very much like the Odyssey. To talk about mythopoeic. like she has like a very, um, like her novels have this like Odyssean quality
0: to them. Hmm. Tim, I know I you know, got to go. Think, so- Tim? Yeah. I, I I tend toward um, one of your answers. The kind of I'll I'll use the word dissonance even though you use the word uh-huh. disparate the dissonance between these two between two cultures and I think that may there might be some striving I think in father tour toward finding a kind of center point um motif that is driven by the gospel, or is that, dri- that is driven by and housed within the Catholic Church, and sort of striving for the, the organization, striving to enact the motif of the Catholic Church in this culture that, in many ways, is dissonant to European Catholicism. And I think also recognizing what lies outside of that organizing motif. Um, and letting it be, letting it, letting it mm. exist, like not mm. encroaching upon it in some way, like treating really it good. with dignity. That's good.
1: That seems like a good place to stop. I, and you have to go anyway, Tim. Um, Heidi, Tim, anything you're looking to over these last these next two parts before we uh,
0: wrap up the book? Any anything you think readers should? I'll look start, for? Heidi. I'm just kind of I'm gonna be missing Father Viantin. Father Latour. I feel this way, like when I get to a lot of books that I really like, I'm like, oh, no. I'm not going to get with them anymore. What? So I don't have any... You know you know, you can start the book over again. What? Right? Um, you can just go back to the beginning. That's what I'm looking forward to. I'm looking f- just kind of like to saying our goodbyes and by the title of the book, I'm afraid we're going to lose one, if not both of our characters. Heidi, what about you?
2: Okay. Two things. One, the next, the title of the next chapter is "Gold Under Pike's Peak," which I live right under Pike's Peak, so oh. I'm interested in that. Um, also, and, and obviously, Pike's Peak is in not in Arizona or New Mexico, so there's going to be a change of setting. Um, and then I'm also looking for what's going to happen with the cathedral. He started book 7 oh, with yeah. I'm going to yeah, build yeah. this cathedral. Or book 6, excuse me. I'm going to build this cathedral. And he has this like vision for it, it being this uh extension of himself. And and it's and and where is it?
0: Can I just ask a question? It's absences. Is... Yeah, 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 go ahead. What if this is um Moses did not get to enter the promised land, but Joshua took the people into the promised land. The pending death, presumably, of the archbishop, Father it's Latour, is he going to be like a Moses character or, you know, with regards to the cathedral? Or is he going to actually be able to build the house of God himself? That, that's mm-hmm. just occurred to me. That may not be and anything. Also, he's that- not an
1: archbishop yet so
0: he's not an archbishop by the end of the book he will be yeah yeah
1: come on guys david what are you going to be looking for well now i want to find out how he becomes archbishop (laughs) gave it away (sighs) spoiler alert
2: well you read my passage
1: so (laughs) (laughs) i thought you said tim read your passage i did i think i did oh well You didn't, you didn't like text us ahead of time and say, I want to read. I
2: know I didn't like claim it. It's not like some kind of explorer on the West claiming (laughs) things for my own that might belong to anybody.
1: Yeah. Listen, it's free range out there. Nobody planted a flag and, (laughs) you know, built a village. Uh, I don't know where I'm going with that, but we should wrap this up. Tim's got to go. So, um, just want to remind you that you can join the conversation over on Facebook, facebook.com slash close You can also find us on Instagram. And of course there's Patreon, patreon.com slash close reads. We are diving into the two towers next Monday. So that episode will drop on Tuesday and there is um, going to be some new, uh, sweet show swag coming for Patreon nice. people. And then also we're going to be putting a bunch of some of the older sweet show swag up on the, goldberrybooks.com website where you'll be able to buy posters and mugs and t-shirts and things like that should you be interested in doing so so be on the lookout for that um we got lots of cool stuff coming and uh you know just make sure you're uh, joining the conversation and all the listeners have been doing uh as usual doing a great job discussing the book and sharing their thoughts and uh arguing with heidi so keep it up perfect keep going yeah keep it going all right well uh before we go i gotta once again thank logan green for uh, editing the podcast and uh making sure that it is listenable and is uh that we are able to get it out to all of you who are listening so gotta shout out to logan as well so logan thank you with that for heidi white for tim mcintosh i am david kern thanks so much for listening and until next time happy reading